Welcome to Salt Company. My name is Ryan. If we have not met yet, I would love to meet you after this. Uh, and I had kind of an epiphany kind of this morning when I was thinking about the sermon and kind of envisioning what tonight would look like. And kind of funny, I want you to take a little trip back in time with me. Imagine like high school you, middle school you, elementary school you. Like I'm going to go back to like 10-year-old me and think about how ironic and funny this conversation would be. You go to like 10-year-old or whatever you, I'm going to 10-year-old me, and I'm trying to explain to them what in the world is going on here tonight. It's like, all right, 10-year-old me, there is going to be a time in your life, a magical time, a magical land, where you can stay up as late as you want with no parents, with no rules, with nobody, t- <laughs> with nobody telling you what to do. <laughs> And you are going to be gathered with hundreds of people going to church because you wanted to. I think 10-year-old me would be super confused. And I'm guessing a lot of you guys, the 10-year-old you, would be really confused as well. I think that's a hilarious, ironic thing just to like not miss the beauty of this moment. That there are no parents telling you guys what to do. A lot of you guys are freshmen and you, are, uh, you flew the coop. You are free. And yet here you are, you find yourself at church because 10-year-old me sat in church wearing like basketball clothes because I didn't want to dress up nice. Uh, I was drawing like swords and dragons during church because I was a weird kid. I don't know. Hopefully nobody's doing that tonight. Like I was only in church because I was forced to go. And yet here we are so many years later. What is going on? What are you doing here? What am I doing here? What is the church all about? Why do we care so much to come to something like this, even when nobody is making us. Well, what is the church is a question that we should probably ask. If you have noticed, Salt Company is not just a, uh, a club, like a country club or like a, like a hangout club or anything like that. Like, this is a church right here. This is Veritas Church. We are the college ministry of this local church called Veritas. And this is one of my favorite definitions of church that I've ever heard. You ready for it? One of my favorite definitions of church. Church is like a colony of heaven in a country of death. Church is like a colony of heaven in a country of death. Uh, This author, Eugene Peterson, he wrote the message uh, study of the Bible, and he kind of unpacks this idea in one of his books. He, He says, so why church, right? Why are we doing what we're doing? Well, the short answer is because the Holy Spirit, God himself, he formed it to be a colony of heaven in a country of death. An appointed gathering of named people, that's you and me, in a particular place that's here in this parking lot at Veritas who practice a life of resurrection. In a world in which death gets the biggest headlines, death of nations, death of civilization, death of marriage, death of careers, obituaries without end, death by war, death by murder, death by accident, death by starvation, death by electric chair, lethal injection, hanging. The practice of resurrection, though, is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and to participate in resurrection life, life out of death, life that trumps death, life that is in the last word, Jesus, life. Okay, if I could paraphrase what that long quote was about. This is what I would say. In this world, in this country of death, the main headlines that we read about, the main press, 
that the world is getting out is death. But the church is supposed to be a headline for life. Where death seems to be the hottest news in the world, where the greatest thing to fear is death, we, the church, actually have something to say about that. We should have a better headline. Tonight, we're going to start a series called Colony of Heaven. Because I've seen on social media or on your phones or whatever, like, there's a pretty cool graphic that our friend made, Colony of Heaven. It's a little bit mysterious, but now you know why. Because we're diving into the book of Philippians where Paul, the author of Philippians, he carries this similar thought of being a colony of heaven in a country of death. He says in chapter 3, verse 20, we just sang a, a lyric like this too. It says, to the Christian, Christian, our citizenship, the place where we belong, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly, eagerly await for a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when we become Christians, when we start following Jesus, something amazing happens, right? Like when we put our faith in Jesus, our sin dies on that cross with him. And it doesn't stop there. But when Jesus rose from the tomb three days later, he offers us this resurrection life that knows no end. And so where death used to be the thing that we feared, it is now a gateway into paradise and eternal life with him. But one thing doesn't happen, does it? What's that one thing? When you become a Christian, what doesn't happen? You don't get zapped up to heaven. You're still here. If you're a follower of Jesus and, you, and, and you're, you're here, you didn't get zapped up the moment you put your faith in him. What's going on? What we're going to see in Philippians is that this is actually very intentional. We'll see that God actually has a plan for his church. He wants to change the world with his church, this colony of heaven in a country of death. He has a plan that when we lived out, when we live it out, might actually draw other lost people to himself. This series is meant to invite you into that life, that adventure into this little colony of heaven and a country of death. And tonight, guys, this is what we're going to do. We're just going to dip our toes in, okay? We're starting off the book of Philippians. We're just going to dip our toes in. And Paul, the author of this book, the author of this letter, is going to whet our appetites, right? He's going to like stimulate an appetite for something great. Like I mentioned before, most of us grew up thinking that church was created by like old, mean men who hated kids. But the vision that Paul is going to give to us through this book is so much better than that. Tonight, though, we're actually going to see how incredible God's idea for the church can be, not ours. And maybe, just maybe, we will actually long for this thing called church in a whole new way. This is how the book of Philippians starts. If you want to open your Bibles or your phones or your apps there, Philippians 1, verse 1 through 5, this is what it says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. That's how they want to be known. Servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to you, or sorry, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Okay, this is like a super jam-packed letter. He uses incredibly strong language. It's not like your typical like Dear Jessica love letter or something. Uh, I don't know who Jessica is. It's just the first thing that popped in my head. Like, 
It's, this is not like your typical like beginning of a letter. This is like intense. Like Paul has turned up to 11 already when we start this. Look at the language he's using. Every remembrance, always praying. There's joy in every prayer. What in the world is going on here? We are jumping in where there has been a previous relationship with this church at Philippi and this guy named Paul. Okay, and so I wanted to do a quick, brief overview so we can get some context here. and We can appreciate why Paul loves this church so much, okay? So Paul was a missionary. He planted churches all over the place. And him and his posse were going along. They got sidetracked, and they ended up in this place called Philippi. And what Paul's normal practice was to do was that he wanted to go to the temple. He wanted to find people who were, like, hungry for God, and he wanted to preach to them the truth about Jesus That thing we talked about earlier where Jesus takes your death on the cross and gives you life in the empty tomb by faith alone, not works. Paul was really good at telling people about that, but there was a problem in Philippi. There was nobody worshiping in any temple. So him and his buddies walked around, and they eventually came across a very odd thing. They came across some women, a woman named Lydia and her posse, and they were worshiping God by a river. And so Paul and his guys, they joined them. And they shared this good news of Jesus with them. And they all wanted to follow Jesus. It was a miracle. It was the weirdest start to a church, probably in the New Testament. It was very countercultural. It was just a bunch of women. And that was awesome. Paul said, great, let's do this. And so they started their ministry in Philippi. And it was going really, really well, except there was this really annoying little girl who was possessed by demons, oddly enough. And she kept like heckling them. And she kept heckling and heckling and heckling. And eventually Paul just like couldn't handle anymore. He's like, shut up, essentially. And like cast the demon out of her. He's like, he had it. But there was a problem. This little girl was a slave. And the demons that she had were actually profiting for some weird reason, these people who owned her. And so they were ticked. They were losing money because of this exorcism. And so they rile people up, take Paul and his buddies and throw them in prison. And the church looked like it was on the rocks, right? Nothing worse than the church leader, this brand new church, the church leaders in jail. That's the worst thing that could happen. Wrong, because God knew exactly what was going to happen. And Paul and them, they're singing in prison. They're hanging out. They're praying. They're worshiping God. And all these guards are watching. And eventually, this earthquake comes. God sends a stinking earthquake. And all the chains and bars open up. And this guard knows exactly what that means. It means that he would be killed because all the prisoners are going to escape under his watch. And so he's about to kill himself. And Paul says, no, he gives his life to Jesus. Everybody starts giving their life to Jesus. And this church is born. We got exercised demon girl. We got women worshiping by the river. We got uh, the Roman guard who was going to kill himself because he did a bad job. And this is the church at Philippi. We got one motley crew. But they were bound by the cross and the blood of Jesus. And so Paul has this deep affection for them. They were zealous for Jesus. They loved this good news. They were passionate. And they faced persecution. They did not have it easy by any stretch. And as we continue into the letters opening here, we're going to discover some wild truths about the church. We're going to see, in essence, what it means to be, like the church of Philippi, a country or a colony of heaven in a country of death. And the goal tonight, guys, is going to be incredibly simple. It kills me to make this the goal because I want to preach for like two hours, but I promise you it's not going to happen. Even I'm cold up here and these things are like burning me. It's like a bonfire up here. 
but we're not going to go that long, but we are just going to skim the top of this. I want us to walk away wanting what we see here. It's simple. I want us to see what the church is supposed to be, and I want us to want that. Very, very simple. We're going to see three things about the church that should whet our appetites and stimulate our hunger and thirst for the church, and this is the first thing. It's that the church is supposed to be a colony of heaven and a people of confidence. A colony of heaven should be a people of confidence. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me again. It says this, as we keep reading, I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who started a good work in you is going to carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it's right for me to to feel and think this way about you all because I, I love you, I hold you in my heart, and you are partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. If the world is saying this, that you need to prove yourself to be worthy, then a colony of heaven should scream, it is finished. That is the confidence that a colony of heaven should have. Look at verse 6 in the strong language Paul is, is continuing to use. He's saying he's absolutely betting his life. He is sure about what he is saying. And what's he saying? He's saying he is sure that Jesus is going to finish the good work that he started in this church. Even though people are wanting to throw them in jail. Even though they're facing tons of persecution. Paul is sure. He is confident against all disbelief and all doubt and all circumstance that they are going to make it till the end. Why would he have to say this? Because living in a colony of heaven is hard. Living in a colony of heaven is really hard. Some of you guys know this really, really well. Some of you guys, you, come, you don't come from a background where this is normal. And you face scrutiny every time you go away for a holiday. Some of you guys live with roommates and housemates and floor mates who disagree with what you're doing and you have to face like this awkward tension of living in a colony of heaven, being a part of a church, and you know it's hard. Now turn that up to 11. That's exactly what these guys were going through. And maybe just when their confidence is on its last thread, like we've all been there before, just like when their confidence and their faith is about to snap, he instills courage in them, but not in themselves not by themselves, rather in the power of Jesus. He gives all of the responsibility over to Jesus. We often think that when we come to Jesus, like we're forgiven of our sins, which is true. It's like, all right, Jesus, forgive me my sins, and now the rest is on us. Now you have to make it to the end on your own, on your own power, your own grit, your own will. We muster up courage and confidence. We charge into battle, but something happens. Life gets hard. This country of death starts to win. Our faith is in shambles. And sooner or later, we break. We might start with grace, but subconsciously, we start looking to our own strength to finish the race. And I'm telling you, no, it cannot be like that when we follow Jesus. It was never meant to be like that. How do I know that? Look back with me again at verse 7. It says this. He says he feels this way because they're all partners with me of grace. Or if you have an ESV, it says, you're all partakers with me of grace. What is grace? Grace is synonymous with gift. When you hear the, like that churchy word coming out, you just think of this. Jesus is giving you everything he owns. Grace from Jesus 
means eternal life. Grace from Jesus means no more sins counted against you. Grace from Jesus means everything to the Christian. And Paul is saying, grace is not just something you start with. Grace is not something you say when you raise your hand at an altar call and say, yes, I want to start following Jesus. It's not just the beginning or the foundation. It is the fuel for this entire new life. You know what's true for me, though? As I've been following Jesus for a while, you know what's true for me? My performance for God is so often tied to my confidence. Ryan, how are you feeling today? Eh, not great. Why? Because I don't feel like I've been performing for God. Like, I'm still doing things I said I would stop doing. Like, I'm not following him like I know I should be. I should be better than this by now. And you see what starts to happen. My confidence is in my obedience or lack thereof, not in the grace that saved me and sustains me. I'm sure you've heard this illustration before, but this is like, this is what God's not like. He's not like an angry father who uh, is like teaching their kid how to walk. You know, it's like, you know, have you ever seen a baby try and walk? It's hilarious. They're terrible at it. They're like, like, they do that thing and then they just fall. Well, this is what God's not like. God's not like an angry father who's being like, are you kidding me? Like, get up! Like, I can't believe you would not be able to run yet. You can't even... <laughs> The minute I let go of your hand, you just fall. That is not this guy. No. He delights in every little step his children take. Have you ever seen a dad actually do that? Yell at a baby for not being able to walk? No, it's absurd. And that's exactly what our God is like. He is delighting. He is taking joy. He is smiling, watching us walk in this grace. Or it's like, it's, he's also not like a mean uncle who's fed up with his nephews. I'm, I'm not a dad. I use a lot of kid illustrations. I'm not a dad. But the other day I was trying to teach my nephew. I don't even know how old he is anymore. He's like maybe seven, six. I get him all confused. But I was trying to teach him about like the deep truths of Middle Earth, you know, like Lord of the Rings. And because he's like curious and stuff, he's into that stuff. And I'm like, cool, all right, we can bond over this. He can't kick a ball, so we might as well teach him about Middle Earth. And I was like, and I was like, it's like, all right, so Aragorn, right, he's the rightful king of Gondor, okay? <laughs> okay? He's the rightful king of Gondor. And he's like, Mordor? And I was like, no, 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 not Mordor. Gondor. Mordor is where Sauron lives. He goes, oh, Sauron. I was like, no, Sauron's in Isengard. Where is Aragorn from? Mordor. And I was like, gosh, dang it, stinking kids, like, Pick it up. And then I realize as I'm reading this, I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm so glad God is not like me. And I'm so glad that my performance for him does not make him angry like that. I'm so glad that he is patient with me and that his grace that started off this race is actually the same grace as sustaining me tonight. That is only by his grace I am standing up here preaching. It's only by his grace that you are even receiving any of these words from God. Grace is not just the foundation, but it is the fuel. And the great news is that your confidence right now is in Jesus and his finished work on the cross, his never-ending just rivers of grace that you are being bombarded with tonight is not just the foundation. It is our fuel. He knows we're going to struggle. And when we live in a country of death, our faith will be shaking. It will be hard. But we are to respond this way. Drink deep the grace of Jesus again and again and again and again. 
That is the Christian life. That is the confidence that a colony of heaven and a country of death is supposed to have. Not what we have done for God, but what he has already accomplished for us. Gosh, how sweet it must be to taste this never-ending cup of confidence. A confidence that doesn't rest in how you prove yourself to God, but rests completely in how God has proven himself to you. A colony of heaven should be a people of confidence. Okay, what else? Let's move along. The second thing we're going to see is that a colony of heaven should be a people of love. Keep reading with me in verses 8 and 9. They say this, For God is my witness how I deeply miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. If this world is saying, what can you do for me? We as Christians, we from the colony of heaven should say, what can I do for you? Paul is saying a really interesting thing here in verse 9. Okay, look back at it. Verse 9, very interesting. Paul wants their love to just keep on growing. Like what you received at first when you were saved is great, but I'm telling you, there is so much more to keep exploring. You will never exhaust, never get to the end of this love, but how does he talk about it? How does he want us to keep growing in this love? He says knowledge and discernment. Okay, those sound like homework things. Like love, you think Valentine's Day. Knowledge and discernment, you're thinking like academia. How do those two things work? Well, if you're a study uh, or a student of your Bible at all, you know knowledge usually means more than just head knowledge, right? Like you think like first page when God says that Adam knew his wife Eve, it's not just like he knew her birthday, right? It's like you know, they like knew each other, knew each other. Like there was like an experience to it, right? Okay, so when this is saying that we are to grow in the knowledge of love, we have love, this affection and this wonderful experience over here and we have discernment, this cognitive understanding over here. Knowledge is right in the middle. It's this collision of both where head knowledge and learning and understanding is delightful. And what you read in your Bible doesn't just stay in your head, but becomes worship in the heart of the believer. This is the love that we're to continue to grow in. As followers of Jesus, we will know more and more forever about this God. And the more the church knows about God, it is assumed that we will enjoy him more. If every fact of God's character, every personable thing about him, Every trait, everything he says, everything he looks like, everything he does, if it is lovable, we will get to know that more and more forever. We should want more of this God. And as they delight themselves, as this Philippian church delight themselves in learning about God, knowing God, enjoying him, something happens. The great Christian overflow. Delighted people getting together, delighting in one another. When people filled with the love of God rub shoulders, they love one another. It's assumed, sure, but it's hard and it's messy. And Paul is urging them to dive head first into loving God and loving others. If you're around me for more than five minutes this week, one thing is going to be really, really sure. That it is fantasy football draft week. And it is a holiday that beats Christmas. All right, so if you're around me for more than five minutes, I'm going to start talking about it because I can't help it. I'm overflowing. Why? Because I'm obsessed with football? Not really. I like it. But this is, <laughs> some of you are like rolling your eyes. Gosh dang it, here he goes again. Um, my league is entering their eighth year. 
Okay, yep, thank you. All right, impressive. There you go. My league is entering our eighth year, which means I have had some really good friends over the years. And it gets serious. I'm talking podcasts. I'm talking basketball games. I'm talking paintball. I'm talking like just arguments on a text thread that goes 365 days a year. This is some serious friendship. And I got this crazy idea this week that I would compile, this is a secret, so hopefully none of them are watching this. I would compile all of these pictures that we had over the last eight years of friendship and put them into a slideshow and put some cheesy music to it. You know, try and get the feels going a little bit. And I'm sitting there on my front porch trying to sermon prep this week. <laughs> and I'm like tearing up, if I'm being honest, like watching like all of these, uh, all these pictures roll across my computer screen with my dear friends. I'm just like, what in the world am I doing right now? This is so embarrassing. If anybody could see me right now, if anybody could see all of us crying at our fantasy draft weekend, it would be embarrassing. But something really stuck out to me, guys. And it was the love, not that we have for football with one another, but it was a love that only came from Jesus. That was a shameless transition right there. That these, these men that I did life with, <laughs> sure, we love football. Who cares? But there's some weird dudes in that group. There's some dudes that we would have never been friends without this. There would have been friends that would have never been friends like this, brothers, without something more than a stupid game. But we had Jesus. And you look around a, gr a group like this and your connection groups and stuff, and you are seeing the exact same thing. You are seeing the beautiful work of the blood of Jesus creating his church. Just like in Philippi, a wide swath of people. I mean, look at even our staff team, man. It's hilarious. We're great friends. Somebody asked, are you guys best friends? And somebody's like, yeah, we're pretty close. Okay, look at our staff team. Mikey has literally no chill, and yet somehow he cannot watch a movie, finish it from start to finish to save his life. Zach speaks Elvish. That's weird. <laughs> Olivia should hate me because she, like, lives by a calendar. I have never owned a calendar in my life. Emily, okay, Emily's pretty cool, but... Like, you, I look at that, the people in my life, and I'm just saying, only God. Only God. And that gets me really, really stinking excited. Because I am seeing God's work create in us, create in this whole crowd right here, a colony of heaven and a country of death, where we have more in common than just basketball and music and the kind of clothes that we wear. But we have everything in common at the cross of Jesus. This is really good news. And if I can get teary-eyed over stinking fantasy football, how much more should I get excited about this grace that has brought us together in a family? All right, so at this point, this expectation of the church sounds great, but it's also really difficult to apply. And I would say really quick with this point, it's twofold. If we are going to grow in the knowledge and discernment of love here, I think it's going to take two things for all of us to really be actively participating in this. One, you need a relationship with God on your own. You need to be consuming things different than what the world is offering you. I'm telling you to read your Bible, read good books, soak in it, have time with your God. But to only pursue God in isolation is not how a colony of heaven is meant to thrive. If we want to grow in love with God and one another, it's going to be a noble endeavor, but it is worth it, and we must do it together. We remember that we are all, like Paul says, partakers of grace. It is the one thing that we have in common, and I tell you, it is the only thing we need in common. 
It's Jesus has shared everything with his church. He has given everything. And so we now, followers of him, gladly share this life together. Jesus, who died for you while knowing all of your faults, every in and out of who you were and how you would fail him, still chose to love you enough to give you everything. And now we turn and we do it to other people in this crowd. We do it to others in this church, in this colony of heaven. The colony of heaven should be a people of love. As we finish up, what is the last one that we see here? What is this, this last thing that we are barely dipping our toes into? It's that a colony of heaven should be a people of anticipation. A colony of heaven, this church, Salt Company, we should be a people of anticipation. This is how it finally wraps up. It's saying that we should grow in this love, that we should be bound by this grace. Why? So that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If the world says death is the end, then the colony of heaven should always say our best days are ahead of us. If we are confident that Jesus has bound us to himself in grace, and we are overflowing with love for him towards others around us, then there is one last thing to do, and it's this. Get pumped. Get stoked. Look at verse 10 and imagine this with me. The skies peel back tonight, and you see Jesus. The clouds open up, and we see the king returning for us. What does that do to you? We see him in all of his glory and majesty and power and might and beauty. And I promise you this, on that day, every single person on earth will see him in this way. They will see his power. They will see his might and his majesty. The only difference between those who belong to the colony of heaven and those who belong to the colony of death is this. Only one of us will fall to our knees in pure joy and explosive bliss. As we grow in understanding of Jesus' grace and love toward us, something happens. Paul says that we begin to approve what is superior. We are growing in pureness and blamelessness. In other words, as we enjoy God now, what is happening is we are practicing like a dress rehearsal for heaven. That when we are this colony of heaven here in this life, we are practicing for an eternity of perfection and joy. How could that not make us excited? This means something fantastic if all of this is true. If we truly are a colony of heaven and a country of death, then we, friends, are on a journey, a journey to our true home. And this journey is unique because of this. The one that we are going to meet. The one that we are striving and cannot wait to meet is very much already present, isn't he? He's our prize at the end, yeah. But this Jesus is actually here and he plans to guide us home himself. Personal escort. And if that is true, that changes everything. Because if Jesus is here, if he promised us to take us home, if we get to do this with friends, then we have no choice but to enjoy this journey together. 
Already brought up Lord of the Rings once. Might as well bring it up again. I love this book review. Not that I've read the book or anything, but I've read a book review of the book. And this is what this book reviewer says about the Fellowship of the Ring. It's just delightful. It warms my soul. Why we love this book. Something about the Fellowship of the Ring that gave me a real sense of hope and satisfaction was the idea that in the face of even the most insurmountable obstacles, all you have to do is focus on the next step. And filling each step, each little step, with warmth, togetherness, and good meals is as integral to the mission as the goal itself. In this case, destroying the one ring in the fires of Mordor. Come for the gripping, high-stakes fantasy adventure. Stay for the best camping trip in literary history. Do you want to be a part of that? Don't you just want to be a hobbit, like, wrapped up into that mission? Or a dwarf, sure. Walking barefoot across rocks trying to destroy evil. Don't you just want to be a part of that group? I'm telling you, the invitation is on the table. Because Jesus was confident enough to finish his course and to carry that cross up a hill and to die in your place because Jesus knew you and loved you deeply enough to share in this resurrection eternal life. So you are now invited into the greatest journey imaginable with his people, the redeemed, the church. This is what it looks like to be a colony of heaven in a country of death. And as we close, I just want to address the elephant in the room. I just want to address what's obvious to us. This is not the experience that I've always had here. (laughs) You're not hurting anybody's feelings when you say that. Just say it. Have you experienced this like just soul-gripping confidence every time you come to this church or to this college ministry? Have you just been overwhelmed by the warmth and the love of the people here every time you walk up? Even people you don't know and they might be different than you. Have you left here just longing for heaven with a smile on your face week in and week out? No. None of us have. Sure, sometimes. But we got a long way to go, don't we? And we're okay if we are honest about that. What do we say to it? What do we say when we see this vision of what the church looked like in Philippi, when we are stirred and we want it so bad and we come here and it might not quite be ideal? Believe it or not, what do we say? Then we go back to the beginning of this letter and we say exactly what Paul said to them. Grace and peace. Salt Company, Iowa City. Whether you have been the most loving, warm, inviting person in this crowd where you have been the coldest most isolated to yourself person the same message goes to both of you tonight grace and peace to the confident and the fearful the impressive and the dud to the person who is giving their life to Jesus tonight or the person who is literally born in a church building grace and peace to the connection group leader who has people flowing into their house from every single corner to the leader who is just questioning God, why is this so hard? Grace and peace. To the people watching online who are angry, to the people who are watching online who are afraid, 
to the people here who are confused, grace and peace. To the staff members and the church leaders whose knees are shaking and hands are weak because this country of death seems like it might finally just win, grace and peace. Here's our vision for tonight, guys. Let's just master the restart. We were never meant to move beyond the grace of Jesus. It wasn't something we start with and then graduate from, but it is something we come back to every single day, every single hour, every single moment. And so right now, let's replant Salt Company. Let's together accept and laugh at our imperfections, our lack of confidence, our lack of love, our, our, laugh, our lack of anticipation to meet Jesus face to face. Let's master the restart and let's start over together. Let's rediscover this love and this adventure that we are being called to. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for the joy of being invited into your family. Thank you so much that your plan A for the world was the local church. And God, thank you that even if we are an imperfect picture of that, even if we fall, even if we are weak, you are still here to guide us home. You are still here promising us that we are going to make it, not because we are great, but because we believe you are in control. And so God, whatever ways that I have taken control of this thing called salt company, whatever ways that we have let our ideas infiltrate of what salt should be, whatever ways that we have clicked up and isolated others, take it back, God. Whatever salt company in Veritas has drifted into that is not of the Lord, take it back, God. Whatever ways that my private life has not benefited the kingdom of God, take it back, God. God, when was the last time that I tasted the sweet cup of your grace? When was the last time that I dove headfirst into your love with no hesitation? When was the last time that my heart skipped a beat just anticipating seeing your face? Take it all back, God. And I pray tonight as we all come to the cross right now, nobody better than anybody else, nobody with an upper hand on anybody else but all of us just needing the exact same grace of Jesus that free gift of eternal life and joy would you bind us together in love in a way that only you could do that no strategy no personalities and nothing else in common would ever do for any other community but the blood of Jesus would bond us together in this parking lot tonight and I pray for those who are just hearing this good news for the first time that they are saying is it really this easy I literally just say yes and I get this grace God I pray for that person to not hold back they would dive in. They would tell somebody. They would go to a tent and tell a connection group that they need to do this Jesus life with other people. Oh God, you're up to something. You're taking us on a wild adventure and I do not want to miss this. And so Lord, hear our praise tonight with desperate hands raised and joyful and anxious voices raised alike. Take it, God. Be magnified because you are good and you are worthy.